0: And thank you all for leading us in worship this morning. If you would take a Bible and turn with me again to the Gospel of Matthew. We just have one more week next week uh, in this uh, this liturgical year. And then we uh, enter into Advent season in just a couple of Sundays. But we have two more weeks in the Gospel of Matthew today. In Matthew the 25th chapter, again, uh, today beginning at verse 14. Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who is leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one, he gave five valuable coins. And to another, he gave two. And to another, he gave one. He gave to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left on his journey. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. And he gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received the one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins. He said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. His master replied, excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, master, you gave me two valuable coins. Look, I've gained two more. His master replied, well Don, You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. Now, the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid. And I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. His master replied, you evil and lazy servant, you knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has 10 coins. Those who have much will receive more and they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Now take the worthless servant and throw him outside into the darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, when I was a kid, like probably many of you, uh, one of my favorite books uh, was C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, I loved reading the Chronicles of Narnia, and I think I've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe four or five times if you don't know the story, um, it is about four siblings, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, who are visiting a relative and discover in a wardrobe, um, first Lucy and then everybody, discovers a world through the wardrobe, Narnia. It's a world that is beautiful but broken. It's a world where it's always winter but Christmas never quite comes. Because Narnia has fallen under a curse, a uh, curse of a white witch who who wants to lure them like she lures Edmund into a life where she offers Turkish delights that will just continue to create desire. And so Edmund wants more and more and more and more, but never quite finds satisfaction, thus luring her into this kind of way of life that pursues the wrong loves and that pursues the wrong things. But Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy discover that in Narnia... Narnia was ready for them, that they were supposed to be rulers of Narnia, kings and queens of Narnia, good rulers participating with the good king, Aslan, who, in my favorite line from the Chronicles of Narnia, is good but not safe, and they are to live the life set by Aslan in setting things right in Narnia for all of the creatures in the kingdom And ultimately, then, that is the story they are to live into, to reclaim their authority, and to live as right rulers in the land, and to make things new again. I didn't understand this as a child reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but now, as I look back at that novel uh, through some more sophisticated theological eyes, I see what C.S. Lewis was trying to get us to see That in many ways, Lewis is trying to retell what is the kind of fundamental story of the Scripture, which goes something like this, that we humans were created, and the Garden of Eden tells the story, we were created to be images, reflections of who God is. Later in the text, it imagines it this way, that we were created to be rulers and priests, people who were were created to be reflections of who God is in this creation in which he has placed us, to be dominioners, caretakers for one another, for the creation, and even to care for self properly. And that we were to rule in that kind of way, and in some ways be priests also who, who know God, and who then represent God as his reflections back to the creation, but then take the creation and offer the creation regularly back to God, to to function as proper rulers and priests. Of course, the story is about how we move away from that, and we take this authority, this good authority that God has given to us, and we break it, and we misuse it, and we turn the strength that God has given to us into the violence that Cain commits against Abel. That we take all of this this goodness, this authority, and we turn it towards self, and we're no longer the kind of dominioners or rulers, caretakers that we were intended to be. And rather than offer to God the priestly gifts and, and to represent the world to God and God back to the world, we we try to become our own God and, and the image of God in us becomes all distorted. And so the story goes that that a people who are on the bottom rung of this new system of brokenness, embodied in particular in the person of Pharaoh, these people who are broken by the system, God hears their cries and redeems them and brings them into the water of the Red Sea and out of the water into the wilderness where they get two things. They get Torah, the law, and they get the tabernacle and later the temple. And these two things, the Torah is there to restore relationship with God and therefore then restore relationships to each other. So as we saw a few weeks ago when Jesus is asked, what's the summary of the law? He can say it's this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love neighbor as yourself. So that the Torah was intended to to remake their life as rulers and caretakers over all of the creation and each other and self. And they weren't going to do that in their own strength. And so God would dwell in their midst and tabernacle and later temple, that it would be that place where heaven and earth that had been divided from each other. And, and by the way, part of what I love about the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in particular is Lewis's imagination that Narnia, that the way things are supposed to be, if you will, heaven and earth that have been divided. Heaven is not far off somewhere where we need to be taken away there. But heaven is, if we could just find the right wardrobe door, it is all around us. And for the Israelites, it is their dwelling in tabernacle and then temple where all things are being made right and where eventually... That rightness will radiate out to the whole creation and will no longer destroy, but the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But in the meantime, we enter into tabernacle and temple as priests to, to represent the world in prayer to God and then to leave and represent God and God's healing back to the world. And so they were to be restored as proper rulers and priests. Only the problem is, as you read the story, they too, like Adam and Eve, misuse that giftedness. And so, for example, David uses the authority that God has given to him to misuse that power in relationship with Bathsheba and Uriah. And even our best king has a tendency to misuse that giftedness. And the priests turn the temple not into a place where we meet God and where God radiates back to the world, but... a place where religion just becomes one more system that exploits people. And so they wind up in exile. But God refuses to give up on this plan to restore us to the place that we ought to be as proper images of who he is, rulers and priests for the world. And so he brings them out of Babylonian exile, and the Old Testament kind of ends there. And what we've been seeing over these last several weeks in Matthew is Matthew enters in and says, listen, that story's not over. But here comes one on the scene who is rooted in the story of Abraham and the covenant promise that God has made and the ruling of David, but is also the one who brings us out of this exile that we were in. And Jesus comes as not just one who knows the Torah, but one who fulfills, who fills full the Torah, who embodies what it means to love God and to love the other to have proper dominion and to rule in the way that the Father would want the Son to rule. But not only the fulfillment of Torah, but in this powerful way, Christ is temple, the place where heaven and earth meet together, where the divine and the human interact and connect, and and this new creation now breaks out, and, and so now Christ, as the writer of Hebrews can say, is the perfect high priest who mediates the world back to the Father, but mediates God back to the world. And he finds those, like God heard the cries of the Israelites in Egypt, he finds those for whom this system of oppression does not work, and he invites them into a new way of living. Come, participate, and like the Israelites, enter, first of all, repent of that old life and enter into the waters of baptism and come out of that a new creation, restored into right relationship with God so now all of this can be restored so you can live as proper ruler and live as a kingdom of priests to our God. And This is the new life that we have been called to, servant rulers and to be a royal priesthood. But Christ resurrects and then ascends into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, where you await the time when he will come again and make all things new. But in the meantime, we are empowered by his spirit to be agents of the new creation that is breaking out because death has not had the last word, but life has. And so what we've been looking at these last three weeks are these parables in this last major block of teaching in Matthew that are saying, now listen, in that in-between time, here's the deal. It will be like being a servant whose master has gone away but has left you in charge because you are a ruler, you are a priest, and has gone away. But in that delay, you begin to be tempted again with the witch's Turkish delight, Um. To begin to think this is actually your kingdom and your power, and you will be tempted to exploit that. And so that first parable says, listen, when the maker and founder of a new creation returns, make sure that you have not turned that power into a way to exploit others. So do justice, love, mercy, walk humbly. And as we saw in the parable last week, it's going away. But this feast of new creation is being prepared. It's like a wedding and the bridegroom returning. And so do not be like bridesmaids who who end up being having new creation fatigue and allowing their light to go out and their oil to run out. Continue to participate and, and be patient and live towards that connected to the spirit, empowered to continue to have our light shine, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount before others. But now this third parable. It's like a master who went away, but he gave to his servants each a gift. And in the text, um, Matthew uses the term talents. A talent is a massive. It's not just a coin. It is It's like a year's wages. And so the master goes away and says to his servants, you, I'm giving you five talents, this major amount of money to go and to invest And you, two, and you, one. And then he goes away. This parable is actually really kind of problematic. Um, It's a challenge for interpreters, primarily because of the character of the master who comes back And especially with the third servant, has this whole conversation about things you should have done. I mean, here is uh, Jesus who over and over in the gospel invites us to do justice and love mercy. And now the master seems to be saying, well, at least you could have exploited people and charged them interest, right? It's such a problematic parable that even especially in the Luke version, Luke changes talents to pounds, but Luke places the parable not as Matthew does in this teaching on being ready for the return of Christ, but actually Luke uses it right after the conversion of Zacchaeus. So there are some scholars who think, especially in Luke's version, that that we should read the parable this way, that actually the third guy is the good guy who has said, and the master is not Jesus, but the master is the culture and this place that wants us to constantly exploit each other. And the third one said, I can't do this anymore. In other words, not to lose you, but But that parable for Luke is the the answer to the question, have you ever wondered what happened to Zacchaeus when he went to work on Monday? After having given everything away? And those who demanded he go out and exploit people and take their wealth when he said, oh, by the way, I got converted over the weekend and I gave it all away. How did that go? (laughs) Perhaps the master said, away from me. but I believe that Matthew is doing something different here. And there are two things that are important as we read this parable in the light of what Matthew is doing and where he places it. The first is, as we've seen, Matthew in almost every story ends with a word of judgment and a warning about judgment. Certainly Matthew, having lived through and seen what happened in AD 70, the judgment upon Jerusalem, continues to speak words about how the pattern and the wages of sin always turn out to be deadliness and deathliness. And so that warning is legitimate to say, be careful the way your life matters and what you do matters. And that word of judgment continues to come in. But it's fascinating studying the parable again in preparation for this morning, the way in which the third, um, the third servant responds this way, I knew, which could also be translated, I believe. So if you have your Bible, go back with me for just a moment. Um, when we get to verse 24, now the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew, which again could be translated this way, I believed you are a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seeds. So I was afraid and I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here you have what's yours. And his master replied, you evil and lazy servant, you knew or you believed, I harvest grain where I haven't sown and gather crops where I haven't spread seed. In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers, etc. In other, way, other words, we could read the parable this way, not as though that is actually the way Jesus wants us to function, but this third servant thought That's how, that is the God he serves. That is the master he serves, one who is going to pour out wrath and judgment, and he was living out of such fear and such apprehension that he did what he thought he should do based upon who he thought the master was. And so that the master says, well, that's what you thought, and that's how you behaved? You feared me, and therefore you buried this extraordinary gift that I had given to you so that in some ways the parable can be read as a self-fulfilling prophecy that is the God you think you serve, and therefore, this is the way you have behaved, and therefore, that is exactly how the master will respond. It becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And so let me say this again. This is a servant who is shaped by what I, what, uh, borrowing Walter Brueggemann's old term, lives by a myth of scarcity. There's not enough. This is the world we, have, we are put in where it's a zero-sum game. If I have, then somebody else doesn't, and if they have, then I don't. And so I have to live out of this myth of scarcity to protect what I have. That's how the system functions, and in a sense, the parable says, if that's how you think it functions, that's how it will function. You will live in that myth of scarcity. This is why, sisters and brothers, why, why this whole section is so important to me, because how you think the story ends matters. Where you think this story is going, theologians call this eschatology, how you think the story ends shapes how you live today. And that's why I've said so many of us who have been shaped by a kind of eschatology of fear where we are convinced that everything's going to get worse and worse and worse because that's the God we serve who is eventually going to have to come and rescue us out to deliver us from the wrath that is going to come. If that's how we think the story ends, then we will bury our light under a bushel. We will bury our talent in the ground for fear of what might happen. And we will pull in the reins and we will build up bigger walls fearful of the other. And that is the way our life will be oriented. And in some sense, the parable says, if that's how you think it's going to go, that's actually how it will go. But what is different, what is profound about the first two servants is they live not the myth of scarcity, but a liturgy of abundance. where they see this blessing, this amazing blessing that has been given to them by the master as an opportunity to take the new creation and multiply it. To see the ending of the story not as a fearful judgment that is coming, but as a wedding banquet that is going to break out, a liturgy of abundance where all things are made new. Where we who have been called to be rulers and priests have recovered that life and we dominion then in the love and care and the abundance of God. And we live as priests connected to God, offering the world to God and offering God back to the world in ways in which the new creation expands and multiplies. And and when the Lord returns and all things are made new, he can say, well done. You lived in the hope and glory of the new creation coming. And you took the gift that I gave to you and you multiplied it. You expanded the new creation. And so now in this new creation, you who have have been a proper ruler and priest over a little, now Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, you in the light of Aslan will be restored to the place that those who are made in God's image were created to exist. Loving God and loving each other, being proper dominioners over all of creation and its creatures. Priests who, in love, offer the world to God and then, as his image, offer God back to the world. The first to understand the goodness of God, the, the joy of the Master when the investment that is the new creation in our life gets expanded. I have a story I love to tell. I think I've told it to you at least twice, but you didn't listen. So I'm going to tell it again. Uh, just kidding. I love to tell the story because it's become a kind of parable in my own life. Um, when, when I was in elementary school, my mom and dad uh, pastored in Arizona. And I played Little League baseball there uh, badly, but, but we played there. And... And in those days, um, before helicopter parents came into existence, where parents made us live with the consequences of our bad playing, um, there were snack shacks next to the baseball fields. And the pattern was this, that if your team won, you got a ticket to go get a free snow cone. But if your team lost, you had to go ask your parents for a quarter to buy a snow cone. It was just one more way to reaffirm the fact that you are a loser. Um, and so. A few years later, we went back to Phoenix, and we were visiting some friends, and, and their kid was about the age I was when we lived there, and so he was in the middle of Little League Baseball, and so we went to go watch him play in this game, and, and the rules had changed uh, since we had been gone. The parents had gotten together. Some helicopter parents had come in and said, this is kind of not a great policy. We should just let, let's just add in some money, and both teams can get snow cones now. But it was a new policy, and so we were there watching um, this game, and, and my friend, I, I think I remember him playing second base, and he had a terrible game. Every ball that was hit to him just seemed to go right between his legs, but as it went between his legs and he watched it go into the outfield, he'd kind of skip back and just kind of be okay, right? He'd get up to bat, and I think he struck out every time, but he'd just kind of skip back to the dugout like it was no big deal, and I, this, yeah, you may know this by now, I'm a little bit competitive and couldn't quite understand this. And so at the end of the game where they got demolished, I came up to him just to give him a kind of lifesaver pep talk, right? And I said, man, I'm really sorry about the game. And he looked at me with these wide eyes and he said, it doesn't matter, Scott, both teams get snow cones now. And he grabbed his ticket and skipped off to go get snow cones. Well, what I love about that story, and I don't want to push the theology of that parable too far, but, but the beauty of that story is what would it mean for us to play this game, knowing that we can die for every ball, we can try to make every play, we can swing for the fences, not because it doesn't matter. But because there is one who is coming, who has made creation new, and now we get to participate, not in a myth of scarcity, but in a liturgy of abundance, believing that what we have been given is gift. And now we can risk and participate and with joy try to expand that gift so that when the game is over and the wedding feast has come, we are people who have not hidden that gift but have lived with that kind of assurance with that kind of hope, with that kind of conviction that Christ is making all things new and we get to participate in it. And there are times when we swing and we strike out, but we get right back up, knowing and assured of the love of God and the reality of a new creation. And we can live with that kind of boldness. Not burying our gift, afraid but living, living with the faith of the one who is making all things new. This morning, as we think about this parable, I, every week when I preach, I always think there is a kind of invitation that is there um, that is not always explicit an invitation each week that we gather to say, as we look at this text, we get an opportunity to look at Jesus and look at ourselves and confess a difference. And and this morning, it may be that we are able to look at what this text invites us to and and how we today operate and confess a huge difference. But it may be that some of you who are with us today, either live this morning or maybe later or maybe way down the road where somehow in the miracle of technology you accessed this message today because it was God's divine timing. And an invitation to you to say, you are shaped by a myth of scarcity. You are eating the Turkish delight of the witch that is leading you to, to desire things that will never bring fulfillment it is time to put that away and to enter into the waters of new life, to put the old life away, to trust in Christ, to participate in his death and come out of the waters in his resurrection like Israel entering the Red Sea and coming out as a new people for you to to be born again, to use John's language and Jesus' language in John 3, for all things to be made new, for you to be restored, to be what you were called to be. One who rules in the way of servanthood, the way Christ invites us to lead, to be a priest whose heart breaks for the brokenness of the creation, who offers the world back to God, and then by the power of the Spirit, offers the goodness and the healing of God back to the world. I want to make explicit that invitation. Say this would be a good moment to put away the old and to enter into the new. However, for most of us, probably listening, we entered into that a long time ago, um, and so the, it, this text is not just an invitation, but it comes as a kind of warning. It comes as an encouragement to not lose hope, and to, to continue to be willing to risk. I have to confess, in preparation for this, this was a hard week for me to, to feel that kind of message. Um, like all of you, this has this been a hard year, and continues to be a hard season. Um, For us, 2020 started with grief and has just seemed to kind of compound. Um, I'm really not looking forward to this week as we have to kind of continue to think about what's the right decision for us as a congregation. How do we move forward? And like so many of you who are in institutions where you're having to make those decisions, it's not any fun because you know there's just no way to win. Um, (laughs) Either way, you're going to disappoint people. And and we find ourselves in the season where it feels like we are contracting and in some ways necessarily so, and, and looking out for each other's protection and care. I love <laughs> online all of the 20 um, t- if 2020 were something memes. Um, I've been collecting a few of them. A friend te- text. Uh, text a few of us one today that I'm still laughing about that said if if 2020 were a playground and it has a little boy sliding down a slide and the end of the slide is a cheese grater. (laughs) Um, And for honest, for a lot of us, it it just feels that way. It feels like um, like a time that is shaping in each of us a myth of scarcity. The imagination of a new creation do not lose the hopes that all things will be made new <laughs> I've joked with you before that that in my family we're all ministers because I have no other marketable skills this was one of those weeks where Debbie looked at me and, in the midst of challenges said are you sure you have no other marketable skills <laughs> um, This parable comes to us today as a people who need the Spirit of God to refresh us and to help us not ultimately be shaped by fears, but to even in these moments where we feel isolation and for right reasons, (laughs) we do not lose the imagination and hopes of a new creation. And so this morning, if you have never been restored into that place that God has for you to be his image, to, to rule as our servant leader Christ rules. Or to be that spirit-filled priest who whose heart breaks for the broken world and offers the world to God and then learns what it means to be filled with the Spirit and offer God back to the world. All oh, that is the life. In this parable, that is the life the master wants to give to you, an incredible gift, an abundant gift, a gift that is worth more than we could ever put together, but a gift that we're called to take and in joy and in hope expand, expand, expand. And to not bury that, to not hide that, but to be shaped by the joy of the one who is going to come again. Lord Jesus, help us today. And I I pray for some who are hearing this or watching this this morning who are tired and discouraged. I pray for some who who have no knowledge, really, of what it means to enter into the life of the new creation. I pray first that you would be our source of encouragement. In just a moment, when we sing that hymn I love, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. May we who sense discouragement in our own soul, may that be, as the song says, may that be our story and song today. Blessed Assurance, you are ours. And therefore, we can live in hope, we can live in joy, we can live in goodness, we can live like those first two servants, delighting in the expansion of the new creation, dreaming the dreams that you have for us as we await the time when all things will be made new. Have mercy on us for the ways that we, we give a bad ending to an unbelievable story. And we become shaped by those fears. And so help us today. May we, as Thessalonians implored us earlier, may we continue to encourage each other as children of the light. And I pray for the one or more who are listening today who do not know that life, may they be ready to set that aside and to receive the newness that you have for them. We confess our sin and our myth of scarcity to you. Embrace us in your new creation. Make us to be rulers and priests, sources of your love and the expansion of your salvation until you come again. For this, (laughs) this is our story. And this is our song, praising our Savior all the day long. May we be shaped by that. And may you, when you come again, May you be glorified in the life that you have given us, that we have extended to others. Be glorified in us, we pray, for we pray in Jesus' name.